Hey everyone and welcome to a special edition of They Live by Film. We are going to do something slightly different today because we had a very pleasant surprise. So uh, I know, you know, Adam, Zach, I know you all know the whole story by now, but just to kind of recap for everybody listening. So I reached out to, off the back of the Arbelos, uh, the exposure to Arbelos series that I did on Reddit, I reached out to one of the people that was active on Reddit from what I thought was Arbelos, Craig Rogers, the restoration specialist. Um, and then it turns out that Craig was extremely appreciative for sort of like, you know, bringing exposure to boutique labels. And he said, but I have some exciting news for you, dot, dot, dot. Give me a few weeks. So a few weeks pass. And then he writes me back and he says, okay, I can talk about it now. Uh, it turns out he's starting a new uh, label, distribution label uh, called Deaf Crocodile. So I think, I'm sure y'all remember, uh, oh, and, and he would be willing to, to speak to us about this new label. So I'm sure y'all remember when I wrote that, right? When I yeah, wrote y'all yeah. about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I wasn't expecting and why I'm so, you know, while we're doing this special episode is that Craig's uh, business partner is Dennis Bartok. And, I, you know, I don't know how much y'all know about that name. Uh, he's sort of the guy behind the guy, but he did programming at American Cinematheque for, for most of his career. And you know they do uh, the they they produce the the programming for the Egyptian theater and the Arrow Theater in Los Angeles, and they have basically anybody who's ever been an actor or a director or a producer in Hollywood has come through Dennis's you know uh, programming at some point. And uh, Leonard Maltin called him the guy that knows more about film history and the culture of Hollywood than anybody else alive. Wow! So I was a little bit intimidated to speak with them, as you can imagine. Uh, being this is my first ever interview with somebody who's actually in the film industry for a podcast where we have six episodes. And I, I would just set it up as a 10-minute interview. And I, had, I, had, I did my research. I, I learned about their backgrounds. I, you know, I learned about Dennis Bartok's mom, who was kind of an experimental avant-garde filmmaker. I had my whole thing ready to go. Craig, who's done some of the most amazing restorations in the last 10 years, uh, including Zach Assault on Precinct 13, he's working on in 4K right now, which I know you're excited about. I am. And Dennis, get on this line. And I have Wi-Fi issues, and it's not going well, but they're super nice. So finally, I have to run, literally run, to my office, which is luckily about a four-minute run, and get on proper Wi-Fi and sit down and have this 10-minute conversation, which turns into this episode you're about to hear today. Couldn't be nicer, couldn't be more human, couldn't be more accommodating. They just want to talk about movies and film and collecting and, and they break down. I mean, I mean, you know, we're about to hear it, but just the, the, the honesty when they break down the cost of producing movies and the, the pain of working with uh, estates and, and rights holders for these movies and how you have to walk that delicate balance of knowing what the consumer wants, but also having to be able to wanting to work with that, you know, estate in, for future releases. And just, I mean, anyways, what an amazing first interview. You know, this is one of those moments where I feel like I should just stop now because there's no way that everybody else is this nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's obviously we've listened to it beforehand. We're going to show you guys now, the listeners, how it went. It's an incredible interview. Uh, as Chris said, it, it wasn't really like a normal interview where we just sort of ask questions and things like that. So we find the best way to sort of let you guys listen is just for us to drop you in the middle of their conversation and just take in the knowledge and the niceness and the sincerity of these two guys. And, and Chris, you did a, a bang up job of talking to these and, and reaching out to these guys. It's really, really great stuff. Uh, distributed killer condom. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was one of their pickups. And I I think I watched more trauma films than the guys that run the company because, <laughs> because I watched some films that I was like, if you guys actually sat through this entire movie, you would have never distributed it. Oh my gosh. So, okay, uh, not as cool as that, but just to let you know, we're on the same wavelength here. So a couple years after getting married, my poor wife, we were up in New York City on a, on a holiday together. And I drug her through the industrial side of Queens to the front door of Troma Studios. And I just knocked on the door and, and some intern answered. And I was like, can I get a tour? And they were like, I guess. <laughs> so I actually got a tour uh, and I got to meet Lloyd. He was just sitting at his desk. And then the elusive uh, Michael, uh, oh, whatever, the guy that's all, you know, there's a yeah, joke. Yeah. He never right. shows his face. I yeah, Lloyd, Lloyd's the front man. Lloyd, Lloyd's yeah. the extrovert. And Michael, Michael is Hurts, the sort of yeah, yeah, behind the scenes money guy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, uh, uh, love that. And obviously love foreign cinema. So then got turned on to Arbelos. And, you know, just between having a, a kind of a new job, new career, and then a young kid, I, I didn't know Cinelicious until later through Arbelos. So I apologize for that. But I fell in love with both Cinelicious and, and Arbelos here in the last few years. And um I, I just have always kind of had a passion for writing so I started writing just it's called like an exposure to series I don't know it's not like I just put it on reddit and I've gone through all of our bellows and that's when I started noticing that Craig was active on reddit um and uh we we've connected just a little bit and through reddit connections so three of us one person in Ireland one person in North Carolina and myself uh developed a podcast where we talk about the movies that we're watching as part of a film club and the middle segment there is something we call Collection Corner. And uh, we just talk about our collections and um, our bellows kept coming up. And then, so I reached out to Craig and found out about Deaf Crocodile um, here in the last- So are you a physical media, like a, a Blu-ray and, and DVD collector? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I actually wrote a book about film collectors and, and film dealers called- I have thousand, some questions about that book. Yeah, I, a Thousand Cuts. Uh, and, and I've been, a, collector myself for many years I started out with you know baseball cards and coins and comic books and then segued into record collecting which has sort of stayed with me the longest since I was about 15 okay. and also movie posters and to a lesser degree I think than you guys blu-rays and dvds although I do have my phone is propped up right now and I, I probably have like I probably have like you know maybe 800 to a thousand dvds and blu-rays that's great. So, um, but they're all in the garage. My wife is incredibly <laughs> patient with my records, thank God. Uh, books, I have a lot of books as well, movie uh -huh. posters, but she can't stand looking at the spines of Blu-rays and DVDs. <laughs> she, said it, she said it makes the house look like a college dorm room to her. You have to pick your battles, I guess. Exactly, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> you know, because if she said, no, I, I can't look at the records and those have got to go in the garage. That's be the end. So, well, so all the, the stacks now. of all the racks with Blu-rays and DVDs are in the garage and I have to go in there on a nightly basis and retrieve them, uh -huh. bring yeah. them in and watch them and then they go back. That's great, Craig. What were you where saying? Do you keep, where do you keep your... I was just saying, it's a good thing that they met now and not 20 years ago because 20 years ago, she wouldn't have wanted to look at those records. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're cool again. Yeah. Um, so it's funny you ask, Dennis. So I've up until we had a child, he's almost, he's about to turn four. So up till four years ago, it was sort of like something that I was kind of a compromise. It was in a relatively prominent place. 
But once we started consolidating with uh, with the kid, it actually is in his nursery bedroom. Uh, and I watch a lot of horror and I love horror films. So there's a sheet over it because he gets scared when he sees the covers. <laughs> um, I have to say, this is an amazing time to be a, a horror fan, especially a cult horror fan, because fan, because not only can you see, for example, almost everything that you know Mario Bava or Dario Argento mm-hmm. ever directed, with a couple exceptions, um, on on now you know Blu-ray and streaming, but they're putting out Paul Nashy films on yeah. on Blu-ray. Yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, to me that you can see. Like, and, and the beautiful, beautiful scans, like two yeah. K or even four K versions of Paul Nashke films, is really, it really is a brave new world. Um, I mean, these are all the movies that when I first started programming at the Cinematheque in the nineties, you know, you would find these third and fourth generation kind of bootleg VHS copies at like Jerry's Video and in Los Feliz, if you were lucky. So, you know, it, it is amazing that there are all these, these sort of niche companies out there that are able to restore and re-release these films. Now, what, I have to ask, what are your, some of your favorite horror uh, directors or, or horror films, right? Or eras of horror? Yeah, so um, I've gotten a lot into Gallo or Galley films. Uh, so, you know, there's this, there's this label called Raro Video that is yes. done. Pretty good job. So between Arrow Video, Arrow Films, uh, Raro, uh, Severin, you know, I, and to lesser extent, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, but for sure Blue Underground. There's, you know, you can find uh, Synapse is another one. You know, you can find almost like you were saying. I mean, if you want to go on a Mario Baba run, they're almost all there, except for some of his early comedies. Um, uh, you know, for sure, like the Fulci films are almost all there. Uh, so you, you start. I don't to, think anybody. I don't think anybody has put out. They they put it out on DVD, but I don't think it's come out of Blu-ray. Blu-ray. It is Ivan Piri, which is an early film that Baba shot and um, I think wound up co-directing when the director quit. Weirdly, there's very few uh, Machiste Hercules movies on Blu-ray. The the I think the only one maybe that's available on Blu-ray is really the the. The masterpiece which is hercules in the haunted world which just came out on blu-ray and that really is the best but there are a lot of really great the the mickey hargaday jane mansfield one um is fantastic the theory of hercules uh the witch's curse which is afraid of film but um it's a little bit similar to hercules in the haunted world where which starts out as so great. Machiste rides into a little Scottish village, like in the 18th century, okay. bare-chested, wearing a, uh-huh. like a fur loincloth. Uh-huh. And there's a bunch of Scottish villagers standing around wearing like cotton mather outfits with like conical hats. And they all go, hello, Machiste, good to see you again. And I was like, not only are they not surprised, but he's been there before. And then, of course, he has to go into the underworld and, and defeat a bunch of demons and stuff. It's just fantastic. So, like, this conversation is exactly where I, you know, I went about 10 years without doing anything with film just because of career kind of going, getting off the ground. And I started some businesses and stuff. And I got back into it in 2019. 
And Reddit has been a godsend for me because just to be able to find people that can, I mean, you know, at my management consulting firm, there's not a lot of people that I can talk to about this kind of stuff. You know, they, <laughs> they do their MBA and they learn how to speak corporate speak. And you start talking about, you know, irreversible and you get fired, you know, you're not going to get, uh, or some Gaspar Noe film, let alone some of the crazy stuff that, that, uh, you know, is out there. So if you want to get Craig going though, you got to talk to him about Prince because he <laughs> is the biggest Prince fan I know. Oh yeah? Oh. A little bit. That's fantastic. Uh, is the rest of the room that's not in frame, is that all Prince memorabilia? Uh, no, I try to keep the home decor, you know, something we, everyone likes. <laughs> or yeah, it would, it would be a little, I did, I did when I turned the garage into a, a workspace, I did paint it purple though. <laughs> that's fantastic there's um i i like i love prince's work there's a fantastic uh, kevin smith has a great bit on one of his early stand-ups where he talks about shooting a video of prince that, that never got released have y'all heard that stand-up bit yeah he he, he oh, talks no, about know. prince twice on his on his uh evenings with kevin smith yeah he did he shot this shot edited finished completed turned in a documentary and it's just sitting in the vault it's crazy. oh wow they're that's actually something now that i've heard about that I'm, we, we have to track down kevin yeah. smith and see if we can get access to yeah. that well I, yeah they've been releasing the the, the 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 estate's been releasing stuff out of the vault every year now so that'll probably come out now at some point wow is craig is also a huge comic book aficionado uh and actually works with a number of really amazing comic book artists and has a collection of original comic book art that is really groovy as well. So that's fantastic. Great. Yeah, well, that's, Brian yeah. Boland is a, a, a British artist that uh, he drew the cover to a Prince comic book. <laughs> and I've, I've always wanted to turn down, uh, turn, you know, find that, that artwork and, and make it mine. And uh, <laughs> last I heard uh, Prince himself had it. So, I don't I, I've good. stopped I've stopped dreaming I don't think that'll be coming out of there yeah. well uh the, I know that one of the focuses of Deaf Crocodile is animation so is that kind of the tie-in is your love for comics and, and graphic novels and um yeah it's actually the restoring animations um a lot more work but it's it's also really fun um because the the uh the handmade quality of it you can really see that and, and wanting, you know, maintaining that, um, even though I'm trying to clean it up as best as possible, there's still a lot that's, that's not perfect because it was all done by hand and pasted together. And um, so getting to see, it's kind of like getting to see the, the, the behind the scenes and how it was made um, when I'm doing the restoration work. So well, you should good. you should tell him a little bit about when in what went into the restoration of Belladonna of Sadness because that's that was yeah, a Bella, that was a really was complicated we, amb ambitious project yeah yeah we got the we got the negative um, scanned it and then uh, they also sent us a little beta videotape that we could you know use as a as a reference and as they were putting the scans together, we realized there was quite a bit of footage missing from the negative. Um, yeah. There's a, a, a whole 
almost looks like schoolhouse rock animation segment that was just gone. Okay. Um, and then when we started really looking into it, there were lots of shots that were trimmed. <clears throat> and it didn't seem like it was trimmed for content because a lot of them were just a few frames short here, or a few frames short there. So I don't think we, did we ever get to the bottom of exactly why they were uh, cut so, out? Because it seemed like maybe we were thinking maybe for timing for television or something because there was a re like, so, there was no so, point in cutting, you know, five frames off a shot here and six mm. off a shot there when, it, I mean, it wasn't changing the content at all. Yeah, so, so Belladonna of Sadness came out in the early 70s and mm -hmm. um, it was the last feature released by Mushi Productions, which had been started by Osama Tezuka, who was the kind of godfather of anime and, and manga in Japan and created series like Astro Boy and yeah. Kimba the White Lion and things like that. Um, and in the early 70s, his company decided to kind of expand into, into trying to do animation for adults with more more adult themes and, and content. Yeah, films like that. Um, and, and Cleopatra, Queen of Sex, I think, was the <laughs> was the other film. Um, and the last of them, which was by far the most surreal and bizarre, was Belladonna of Sadness. I think it actually came out when the, when the company was was imploding and folding and, and it was restructured and, and reborn and it continues to this day, but is essentially is a kind of a, a different company. And when the film came out sort of barely in theaters in Japan at the time, it was not successful at all. And they tried to do a re-release of it, I think in the late seventies, aimed at, at a younger, I think possibly like like a teenage audience, and so they went in and and cut out about seven minutes of footage from the original camera negative and threw it away or lost it. Yeah. So so we got these reels of this beautiful original thirty five millimeter negative, but then you would look at the side of the reel and you would see splicing tape, splicing tape, splicing tape, splicing tape, and each of the reels. And all that footage was just gone. Um, and uh, the way that we were able to, to restore it uh, during uh, Craig's restoration that he oversaw was we found an original release print of the film, the long version, uh, that was deposited with the National Film Archive in, in Belgium, the Cinematheque Royale in, in Brussels. And they were good enough to do a 4K scan of those missing segments, which then Craig had to insert and we had to kind of try to make them match, wow. you know, as closely yeah, I had, I had to, as, as I had to possible. Play with, the, play with the grain and, and sharpness. And there was a lot of work with the color correction to get it to match. Um, one of the, the other problems was is this print from Belgium had French subtitles burned into it. Ah, okay. Um, so we had to remove, digitally remove those, um, <laughs> which luckily, the, the one I thought was gonna be the most complicated because there was so much going on behind it. Um, once I started looking at it, I could see that the pattern 
flying behind it was in a loop. So I found frames that didn't have the subtitle and I could use those sections because it was a continuous loop that they were running in the background um, wow. to get rid of the subtitles and then reuse the frames that didn't have subtitles on it. So we really dodged a bullet with that one. That's good. Otherwise you're, you're kind of essentially like with the erasing it, like in the old uh, paint programs, like just getting an eraser and making it the colors match on every single letter. Is that what you've had to do otherwise? Well, yeah, but it's it's tough because you don't have the image, you know, if it was like a person walking by, that's really tough because you don't have, you'd have to basically just recreate a person walking by. Um, so we got lucky there. And then with the color grading, um, I was really worried that it wasn't going to match that well, going from original negative and then from a print. Um, but if you watch it now, you you wouldn't. You won't you won't be able to tell which parts were cut in. No, I, I mean I, I I certainly couldn't when I saw it. It wasn't obvious to as I was going through it. That was a that was also a beautiful animation style. I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, if there is other stuff in that style, I just haven't seen it. But that story is so heartbreaking. It was like this crazy mix of just like I was in awe of the the way the animation was done in the background. There's just like tragic, really heartbreaking story going on. Um, well, and the other great thing is that that. The main creative um, uh, talents behind the film, the director, the illustrator, and um, uh, Masahiko Sato, who, who did the amazing psychedelic soundtrack, were all alive, um, you know, when we did the restoration and we were able to interview them in Japan and include that in the release of the film. And we did a, a limited run of a, of a companion book as well with the original artwork and, and their interviews. So that was really great that, that the filmmaker and the creative talent behind it were able to, to see it uh, restored and re-released and, and finally get amazing acclaim and, and now regularly shows up on lists of, you know, the, the wildest and, and greatest sort of underground animated films ever made. And for a movie that was almost completely unknown before we had done the restoration and the re-release. So that's really gratifying that, that the filmmakers themselves were able to, to in, enjoy that acclaim that they, they really deserved. That's amazing. But yeah, my, my favorite quote from his interview is when he says that, that he, he thought he was going to have full control of the marketing and then I, when, he, when he actually went to the marquee, it said from Astro Boy to Belladonna. And he was like, why would you? <laughs> Astro Boy fans are going to love Belladonna. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'd love to learn. So the best I could do at research and, and guessing was Deaf Crocodile was D and C. So it was just a way of kind of playing with your names a little bit. Is that is that is there anything to that? Or That's, that's funny. No, we, that's... that didn't even cross our minds. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll tell you, Deaf Crocodile comes from a fantastic old Hollywood story that uh, was told to me by the great British actor Terence Stamp many years ago when we had him at the American Cinematheque for a tribute. And uh, he called me up the next day just to, to like bullshit and tell old Hollywood stories, which nobody else has ever done, especially not somebody on the level of Terence Stamp. Um, and so I'm literally, we're talking on the phone for an hour and I'm just holding the phone out here and literally I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to Terrence Stamp on the phone. 
and somehow the topic of Victor Mature came up and uh, he said, oh, I have the, the best and the funniest Victor Mature story ever. He said in the, uh, the mid 1950s, Mature was in Africa shooting a film and um, the director, it was actually Terence Young who did Dr. No and, and from Russia with Love, some of the early Bond movies, wanted him to get out of a canoe in the middle of a river and wade to the shore. And Mature looked at the rushing water and he said, I, I hear this river is filled with crocodiles. And the director said, yes, that's true. There are a lot of crocodiles in this river. We've had a consultant uh, and he said, crocodiles are terrified of noise. So since dawn this morning, we've had people running up and down both sides of the river, firing guns and banging pots and pans. By the time we shoot, I guarantee there won't be a single crocodile left in that river. Mature looked at him skeptically and he looked back at the water and he said, what about the deaf crocodiles? <laughs> and I thought that story was apocryphal, right? <laughs> I thought this is the greatest story, but it can't be true. And then a couple of years ago, I was on line, just, you know, web surfing and of course started looking up Victor Mature as you do. And I found a press article from a newspaper in Kansas that says, Victor Mature has misgivings about deaf crocodiles. <laughs> and it turns out that that's actually a real story. And, uh, and, and subsequently I, I have become friends with his daughter, Victoria, uh, who's, who's really a wonderful, lovely person. And uh, I said, you know, I'm a great admirer of your dad's. I tried desperately to get her dad to come out to the Cinematheque um, yeah. for a tribute. And he just, you know, he wouldn't do it. Um, he lived, uh, I think he lived down towards San Diego way. And uh, he was just interested in golfing <laughs> the, the latter part of his career. I he just really wasn't interested in revisiting his, his movie career, which is a shame. So I think he, he made some really entertaining films. Yeah. But I said, you know, I love your dad so much. He, he seems like he had a great sense of humor and healthy skepticism for the industry. And I said, and there's the great deaf crocodile story. And she goes, what deaf crocodile story? I said, this oh, is the no best way. story about your dad. You have to know this. <laughs> so I actually sent her the newspaper clipping from, from the day. And she goes, oh my God, that's fantastic. I never heard that before. That's great. I, just quickly on American Cinematheque, where you're talking about that. I don't know. I, I, I did a quick check to see, you know, IMDb has the year you were born. I don't think you would have been old enough, but did you ever make it to the Filmex uh, uh, conference or festival? No, no. Okay. I, I didn't come out to Los Angeles until 1992, which was okay. years after Filmex had, sure. had come and gone. Although uh, I worked with a lot of people who who had been involved with Filmex. And in fact, the two guys that hired me in 1992, when I first worked, came to work at the Cinematheque, um, Gary Essert and Gary Abrams had started Filmex in the early seventies. And, and sadly they both died of, um, of AIDS within a year of, you know, when I came to, to work there, they got very sick. Uh, and that was a terrible, period, not a lot of, is talked about, but, the, but there was a period in the early 90s when, when AIDS, you know, as it was devastating so many communities across the country, but it, it really wiped out this amazing generation of, of people in exhibition and programming in LA. You know, Gary Esser and Gary Abrams at the Cinematheque, um, 
a wonderful guy who was in charge of programming for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and then Ron Haver, who was in charge of the film program at the LA County Museum. Yeah. They all died uh, within, I think it was like a year and a half, and it left an enormous hole in the, the wow. you know, cultural film scene yeah. in Los Angeles. Um, and that's right around the time that, that I had first come out to, to LA. So, so I heard a lot about FilmX and how amazing it was over the years. And I had FilmX catalogs and I even organized a tribute to FilmX when the, the Garys, as they were known, because uh, they were partners in life as well as in business. Uh, passed away, but I, I never got to go to FilmX, unfortunately. There's a documentary in there somewhere for sure. That sounds terrible. And uh, that's crazy to, to, to know that. Um, yeah. It morphed. FilmX actually was the, the predecessor of the uh, AFI Festival. So oh, okay. the, the FilmX kind of shut down, but then was reborn as the AFI Festival, which of course continues to this day. So. Oh. So it does survive in the way that like dinosaurs disappeared, but they came back as birds. So sure, sure, definitely. Um, well, a lot's changed since then. You know, I uh, even even thinking about physical media, even at the time I've been collecting, uh, which was just DVDs, kind of when I got into it, and you know, people were still that debate between VHS or do you switch to DVD was still going on in in two thousand. Um, you know, I guess I'm curious now though. In in, in twenty years of buying. It feels like, I'd be curious to hear y'all's, y'all's take on this, but it feels to me as a, as a consumer that this is a little bit of a heyday for, for physical media collecting. Um, does it feel that way on the other side of the, of the, of the coin as well? Well, yeah, it's, it's funny because we're in the business of um, acquiring for older films, restoring, and then releasing them theatrically, digitally on, on physical media. Um, but but one thing that a lot of consumers don't realize is that you know smaller companies like us typically will license a film for seven to ten years maximum. Okay. So a film can be available for that window of time, but then once that license expires and if it's not renewed, then it can disappear again and and you know, OOP, out of print, as I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've seen many times. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then there's still tons and tons of of kind of orphan, lost, or just unavailable movies. You know, speaking of animation, there's another uh, amazing Japanese anime film that we've been pursuing now for what, like six years? Probably. So we have to be incredibly patient and persistent and and we, we've tracked down the rights holders in japan and we're just waiting for them to regain the rights hopefully next year in 2022 and then hopefully do a deal with them and actually start the process of hopefully restoring wow. so we've had by the time it we hopefully can do a deal with them. It will have been like seven or eight years of just waiting wow. to, get, to get the rights, not even like restoring the film, but just waiting until we could do anything with it. Well, what, you know, what are some of the hidden costs that I might not know about just as a collector? Like what, that, that's a great one. Just, just even the travel and the, the, the administrative cost of just, you know, trying to track this down and go to, but 
when it actually, once you do get the rights, what, what are some of the hidden costs we might not think about um, if something comes out on the market at 30, 40 bucks a pop? Um, like what kind of, what are some of the things that go into that that might not be obvious? Well, Craig, do you want to, you can actually give them a rundown on, on what is involved with, with restoring a film, yeah, taking we, it from analog into a, a digital form. Yeah. Just, just getting the rights alone can be, you know, thousands of dollars that you have to pay up front to the, to the rights holder. Um, then you need to scan the negative, which is going to be probably at least $6,000. Um, okay. color correction, uh, can be 10, 12,000. If you're doing HDR that jumps up to 15 plus, um, then the restoration work, you know, it'll take me if, if it's in average condition, like nothing horrible, but it, you know, it still needs some work. That's going to take me, uh, minimum probably two weeks per reel so a typical film is about five reels so that's 10 10 weeks of of just picture cleanup yeah. um audio needs to be restored um that's going to be anywhere between six and ten thousand dollars maybe more so and then we haven't even got to Marketing, you need to, you know, cut a trailer, design posters, design Blu-ray packaging, right, yeah. you know, graphic design work. Um, you got to create the Blu-ray itself, any extras yeah, I mean, that just, you would want Just the Blu-ray itself, you know, that that can be 15000 20000 to just get that produced and, and printed. Um, so, yeah, if, it's, it's, a, if you it's, see a, it's a lot of money. <laughs> 4K restoration of a film. Typically on the low end, and Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're probably looking at least 50 to 70,000. And, and this is a, that's a kind of low end 4K restoration. And if you're talking about studio level, like, you know, something that Columbia or Warner's or, you know, um, one of the big studios would do, you could be 150 to 200 and, $50,000. Oh, I think our restoration of Belladonna, what was the final price tag for that? It was probably between 150 and 200,000. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And, you, and so you've got to then go try to make that up in seven years before you lose the rights. That's exactly. That's all, <laughs> that's all money that the distributor is essentially um, putting in upfront with the hope that from the the exploitation of of the film um, that you're going to not only recoup all of your expenses but then make a profit on top of that. So as, so it's as a big a, so it's a big risk. I mean, and this is know. this is why people get very cranky when they see films that they have the rights to up on YouTube and people sharing links to 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 stuff online that's that's completely bootlegged. It's, yeah. it's, you know, people think it's not a big deal, but it's like, especially for, for smaller companies, like we, we need to make those sales or we can't keep putting these products out. <laughs> just at a rough ballpark figure, I, I just did some quick math. It's about 10,000 copies to break even. Is that, does that sound about right? 
Well, you're. Oh wait, no, because I'm not even. You're distributing. You're distributing in in multiple different um, forms or pl or platforms. So basically, you've got your theatrical and non-theatrical screenings at sort of art house theaters and festivals. You've got your digital release on uh, transactional, you know, TVOD and subscription VOD services, educational. Um, there could be TV sales um, and your physical media. So, okay. you know, there are uh, a bunch of great companies out there like Arrow and Severin and others that concentrate primarily on physical media and do a really great job. But you really, you know, I think the margins are really, really tight in terms of what you can spend versus how many units you have to sell before you make a profit at it. So you have to be really smart. I mean, I have, I have great admiration for those companies, Blue Underground, um, a number of the, the companies you mentioned that you collect, um, Scream Factory, Shout Factory, they do a great job. I have a bunch of their, their Blu-rays because they know their audience they you know they know their market they cater to it they give that audience what it wants to buy um and um i think that's like that's really key it, you know both as a filmmaker because I've, I've made movies as a director and producer in in the horror genre and i've also talked to a lot of film school students um here and and around the world i've you know i've done seminars and I said, you know, one of the most important things, which they didn't really tell me, you know, I went to NYU film school in the eighties and everybody was like, you're, you know, you've got to go out there and, and tell amazing personal stories and you're going to be the next Scorsese or Jim Jarmusch or Spike Lee. Um, but what they didn't tell us, which is really important is you have to know your audience and you have to make sure that there is an audience for those personal stories that you want to tell. Right. Yeah. Cause it could be the most amazing and, and, powerful story to you but if there is, aren't thousands tens of thousands of people out there that want to experience that story it's not going to go anywhere it, that was that was my exact reaction to giuseppe makes a movie i just feel like how could this story not be bigger like what a beautiful story personal story and like the characters were beautiful and sweet and like charming and like but like yeah just it, it was a little off center and like it just couldn't find a uh, you know, I love Giuseppe. That was the first movie we acquired and released. I'm, I'm also friends with the director Adam Rifkin, and it's my favorite of all of his his films, which are really wonderful. But Giuseppe, I think, is really special, and it's one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen about the creative process, whether you you love movies or not. So, Unfortunately, yeah. Giuseppe, as he's as he's grown older I think uh, has not done very well I think he's got some some issues and and you know the last that that I had heard um, I think he was actually in the Austin area but but was really struggling and having a hard time which I was really oh, sad to hear about so it's too bad if I yeah that's that's okay that's unfortunate um, no. um well I you know, I, I'm sensitive that I'm, you know, gone way over the 10 minutes that I requested. I love, I love you guys being able to be open about this. I, you know, I have two more questions. If you're open sure. to how are y'all doing on time? You're okay? Uh, yeah, 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 I'm good. Good. Okay, I, thank you. So, you know, I, I can't bring a restorer on a call and not ask about the Wong Kar Wai debate. So 
there's, you know, uh, I, I'm not asking necessarily even to give a professional opinion where I guess the thing I'm more curious about from your perspective of somebody that has to kind of balance that between what you know the customers, the consumers are going to want and what the, the, the filmmakers and the, um, you know, the family or the estate is asking for. Uh, what's that tension like, you know, with someone in your seat? Like, how do you kind of balance that? And, or, or do you, or do you just have to go with what the, the state wants? Like, well, we've been pretty lucky with, uh, we haven't run into those kind of conflicts where they want to drastically change something. Um, we haven't had that problem, but if we did, it would be, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. Cause like the, The filmmaker has, you know, it's it's their, it's their film. So, and and it, you know, and if you don't want to burn bridges, like if you ever want to work with them again, like if you're just pull a hard line and be like, absolutely not, we're not doing what you want, and you're never going to work with them again. <laughs> so, it, it's it's a tough position. Um, I, I I'm glad we haven't had that that issue really yeah. well like what if john carpenter had wanted a teletubby in in uh, assault on precinct 13 would you you just got to do it well you, you, you as diplomatically as possible you really try and talk them out of it and, <laughs> and usually well, the best way to talk somebody out of something is to is to you know go to their ego well, there is the there is the the sort of director's version of the Warriors, the Walter Hill film, where he went in like the, if you get it on Blu-ray now, and he has these kind of uh, comic book panel uh, inserts that okay. that uh, introduce the various chapters of the film um, because he always felt that it was sort of like a live-action comic book. Interesting. Okay, it definitely gives it that vibe but those were clearly not part of the original movie. So, you know, it's, it's uh, that's a really tough decision because, you know, uh, the, the filmmaker or the, the rights holder, um, you know, the, they're the people who created that work. You know, I remember years ago, we had George Lucas come to the Cinematheque. We did a tribute to Industrial Light and Magic and Skywalker Sound. Uh -huh. The opening night was was a tribute to him in the Star Wars series. And we were showing um, what are called bake-off reels. Do you, do you know what that term is? No. Yeah. So um, for the visual effects Oscars uh, every year, they used to take an actual physical print of a film and cut out the best visual effects sequences and splice them all together into like a 15, 20 minute reel. Oh, okay. So they would kind of destroy a 35 or 70 millimeter print of a film, um, but they would create these these unique kind of clip shows of just the great visual effects sequences. Well, of course, now that's all done, you know, digitally with a couple, you know, cl clicks of a mouse, basically. But in in the olden ye olden days, they they did that with actual prints. So we, uh, I think, um, they had done episode one and two of the prequel you know trilogy before um you know uh, new hope empire strikes back and and return of the jedi so we we screened actual film prints for 
of of original Star Wars New Hope um, uh, on 35 and actually a 70 millimeter blow up print uh, for Empire Strikes Back, which came from the collection of the Academy of uh, Motion Pictures. Their okay. film archive were very generous in loaning it to us. Um, and the prints were a little faded because um, this was before uh, they had um, LPP low fade print stocks, which were introduced in the early 80s, like 82, 83, I think is the, the change over here. Um, and in the case of the original Star Wars, Bake Off really had the original visual effects. And uh, so I was talking with Lucas in the what we called a green room, which was actually a a claustrophobic cluttered little space outside of our box office. And I said, you know, Mr. Lucas, thank you so much. I just have to tell you the Bake Off reels for the first couple films are kind of faded. And, and for the first one, it's the original visual effects. And he went, ah, it's okay. Nobody's ever gonna see it like that again anyhow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know. Nobody in the audience knew that that was the last time they were ever going to see you in that condition. Um, I think somebody did actually raise his hand and have the temerity to ask him about that. And I think he gave, you know, what is his standard answer was that he was, he, you know, uh, didn't have the, the technology or the budget to do the effects the way he wanted initially. And so he felt like he should, you know, have the right to go back and correct them. Which it's I do, it. I completely understand from a, I, I guess from a pure um, archival and film loving perspective, I do think that you should preserve the original release of the film because that's how film, you yeah. know, audience... I think that's what frustrates, I think that's what frustrates everyone is that it's not so much that people are, uh, uh, don't like or want the new stuff, but they want the option to also see how it was originally. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't quite understand the 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 hard stance they've taken on. It's like no, <laughs> you can only see the new one. You, yeah. if you want to watch uh, Amadeus, which it's one of my my wife and I's favorite films, love it. Milo Forman right. masterpiece, great movie. <laughs> you can only get the original cut on DVD. Blu-ray is this extended director's cut that includes like 20 minutes of footage that nobody needed to see. Including, I think like nude sequences with Mozart's wife and stuff. It's just like, and, and all the reviews are like, why did they put this back in the movie? It was I, perfect. It was perfect in the original version. So th that is a bit of a bummer when, when they remove the original and kind of force you to watch the new version. There is one way to see the original uh, version of, of Star Wars, and I, I talk about it briefly in my book on film collectors, is um, uh, there are a handful, maybe six or eight surviving 35 millimeter Technicolor prints of the film that were made in England for the release there in 1977. And I think they were actually the last prints that were struck in England um, in dye transfer Technicolor, Ivy Tech. Wow. before they shut down that equipment. They had shut it down, uh, the dye transfer printing facility here in uh, LA in 74. I think The Godfather 2 was the last new film in which they struck 
Ivy Tech Prince. Okay. They kept it running for a few more years and Star Wars was the last one. So in the collector's market, there are a few of these incredibly rare British Ivy Tech prints of the film. Uh, and I've actually seen one. <laughs> and it was not what I expected because of course you think dye transfer technicolor and, and you sort of think eye popping saturated colors and you know, the red shoes and you know, great mm -hmm. Powell and Pressburger mm -hmm. movies, Black Narcissus. And it was actually much more muted and kind of new Hollywood looking uh, than I expected, especially the sequences on uh, the Tatooine. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching this incredibly rare print, this was years ago, I suddenly had this incredible, like visceral physical memory, like kick me in the chest. And I said, this is what Star Wars looked like when I saw it in 1977, wow. when I was a kid, when I was a 12 year old kid at a multiplex in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and I went like a week into the release. This is what it looked like. Because I think, you know, over the years, not only have they, um, you know, uh, revised or altered the, the visual effects and in some cases added, you know, a couple digital characters, but they've also, change the color grading and, and Craig, maybe you can talk about that really quickly. That's actually an incredibly important and little talked about aspect of, of restoration and re-release of movies that, that really alters people's experience of a film is, is the color grade process. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's certainly the, the part that gets Blu-ray collectors riled up when a new release comes out. <laughs> um, First thing they do is you go on Blu-ray.com and people are comparing screen captures from the previous releases yep. and like look and like you know the yep. framing is slightly different and the color is slightly different and yeah and then there's a huge debate over which one's better or which one's correct and um, so it is it is interesting the I mean it always it, it always comes up when there's a huge difference like you were talking about the the new box set that's coming out. Um, and uh, it's, I don't, I don't quite understand it when there's a huge change and there doesn't seem to be any reason. <laughs> That's when, you know, you know, it's not the director wanted to change it. You know, it's not that, that, you know, they didn't have any sort of reference. Um, uh, like I'm, I'm thinking of the, some of the recent releases of like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Drastic color changes. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like when we did, when we did the, the last movie, we, we found the last print that was made that was color graded and approved by Dennis Hopper and Laszlo Kovacs. And we screened that um, in a theater. So we knew what it's supposed to look like, especially if you're going back to the original negative, because the original negative could be uh, exposed, but then printed dramatically differently. And one of the things that I, I noticed when we were screening, and was, and and, when I, and I asked about it, and they they can you know concurred that yes, the you'll notice in that film, there's sometimes where the sky 
the, the, the print was timed for the sky. So the clouds aren't blown out. The sky is nice and blue. Dennis Hopper's face might be, you know, too dark, but they wanted to make sure that the sky didn't blow out. So most films, they go the other way around. They want the actor to look perfect. If it makes the sky blow out, so be it. But for the last movie, that, that's not what they wanted it to look like. You know, and um, people's, people's memory and taste change over time. So the look of films is going to be very different now than if you were around in the, the 80s or right. the 70s. So if you're restoring a film now without even knowing it, you may grade it to match tastes today. Contemporary as, taste. Oh, yeah. contemporary taste as opposed to... Uh, yeah. what it should have looked like in the in this 1970s or 80s which is well, why talking, you try and get to, we were just talking to joe yesterday about the assault on precinct 13 restoration yeah and, and and one thing he said to me he's like well when you get to the color grading he's like promise me he's like just promise me you're not gonna make it look blue and orange like all modern films wow <laughs> And I was like, no, that's absolutely not going to happen. It's not going to be. Apparently all the, all the smoke from all the gunfire was like teal. For some movie. reason, when it was, when it was graded, the, the last time they did it, they made all the smoke look teal. And he's like, banish teal from your color palette. So our friend Joe Kaufman is the executive producer of the original Assault on Precinct 13 that we're in the yeah. process of, of doing a 4K restoration on. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's really tough, it, you know, in many cases, like films from the 70s, original prints are, are most likely to be faded unless they were struck on dye transfer technicolor and, and you know, and haven't faded. Um, or if you're lucky enough that the, the director or the cinematographer is still alive, but if all of the main creative people are gone and if you, and if all the original prints are are faded to, you know, pink or purple, then you start having a really, you know, it's a very delicate balance. Like, you know, how do you color grade a film so that it's going to be as close as possible to to the director and cinematographers? I I won't, I won't ask you all to. Yeah, I want to ask you all to go down this tangent just for the sake of time, but that reminds me of a documentary. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but they were walking over the process of restoring art, old, old paintings. And uh, anyway, some of the similar topics came up, but you have to get a little bit creative sometimes as you're restoring some of these old pieces, especially if they've been in a, a basement for 50 years or a hundred years, you know, like you have to make some choices along the way just to try to make it feel like that authentic experience. When they cleaned the Sistine Chapel, and and there was enormous outrage when they did that major cleaning in the past like two decades and yeah. um the colors were so much more vibrant because of course they removed hundreds of years of smoke and dirt and grime and you know millions of visitors and smoke from candles and incense and suddenly <laughs> you had these incredible eye-popping almost like cartoonish colors and people were screaming art historians about how they had ruined the, you know, the uh, Michelangelo's work and the frescoes and they, they looked like, you know, 
characters out of a comic book. And it's like, no, that's what they were originally supposed to look like. We had gotten used to seeing them occluded and obscured and darkened over the years. No, we have the same problem with movies. People get used to, especially if something that has that never made it to DVD. The only look people have ever seen is this flat, no color, no resolution, pan and scan VHS. But that image is burned into their brain of that's what that film looks like. And some people just have a hard time accepting that that's not what it was supposed to look like. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, especially in a lot of the genre films where it's really hard to find yeah. to begin with. Um, well, um, I, I could, this is, I, I was nervous talking to y'all coming in. This is the first time I've been speaking to people that are in the, in, in the industry. This has been a phenomenal conversation uh, for me. I thank you. Hey, anytime you, you want to have us back, we're happy to. Yeah, to, to, Dennis and I can talk about movies endlessly. Gab, gab about <laughs> movies. And you can see my teenage son's uh, uh, bedroom. This is what I use as my office during the pandemic. So you get Dr. Dre, the chronic, and you get Tupac. And so and that's Disneyland Records Carousel, that's mine. With all the <laughs> Beatles and Yardbirds single. So. He's got to put that in there. Um, that's amazing. Uh, well, I'm sure we will. Um, that, I guess the last question for now, because this is an interesting time. Uh, I, on uh, Was it Thursday of last week or Wednesday of last week? I finally got the newsletter from y'all introducing some of the titles that are coming theatrically. Um, which I was really excited about. When can we as collectors expect to pick up uh, spine number one and two of these wonderful Indian films or whatever you have you know, planned, I guess, from, from Death Crocodile? It'll probably be end of the year, I would imagine, because we're gonna wait until art house cinemas really are able to reopen you know, when, when enough people get vaccinated and they think it's safe and audiences start to return. Yeah. So the first films that we've acquired, we've told the filmmakers and the rice holder, look, we wanna wait so that your movie gets a theatrical release followed by you know, uh, home video and, and digital and TV and everything. Um, and, and they're really behind that. I think okay. they all wanna see art house theaters reopen and see their movies on the big screens. Yeah. So, so I think we're probably looking at, you know, September for theatrical. And then typically if we, if we are doing a home um, video release, it would be, you know, three or four months after that. So. Okay. Well, I, there's, it's the Paramount theater down here in Austin. I'm sure y'all probably know that, but that's the kind of the major one. So I can't wait to see it there. I hope it shows. And I love the, the, the draft house cinema locations. So, and of course the big news today that the yeah. chapter 11, although I, I'm sure they're gonna be able to, you know, reorganize and, and hopefully keep a number of those locations open. Cause- Yeah, it sounded, it sounded like the, the, the plan was gonna actually put them in a much better position. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you'll have time for the last one, just because you brought up Alamo, uh, Dennis, kind of tied to your book, uh, I, I have not read it yet, so in full disclosure, I found out about it when I was researching and kind of prepping for this, but I will, I bought it, so I will be reading it soon. Oh, thank you. Uh, but did you uh, get a chance to go through Tim Leake's archives at any point? I have not, and I would love to, especially his, his poster collection, because I, <laughs> I know he's a major, major 
poster collector. I have to say the AGFA, the American Genre Film Archive, which is sort of an offshoot of, mm -hmm. of the Alamo Draft House and, and Fantastic Fest, is an amazing organization. Like something like that has been needed for so long to um, to try and uh, archive, preserve, restore genre films. Like my attitude is as a uh, exhibitor as a film programmer uh, years ago now as a distributor is that kind of all movies are on a single level level whether it's an Italian giallo film from the late 60s or early 70s whether it's a Croatian movie from the 80s uh, you know whether it's an amazing new art house independent film from from India or a 4k restoration of assault on precinct 13 good movies are good movies you know, it doesn't matter if they're art house films, doesn't matter if they're genre films, um, which also means that they all deserve to be appreciated and preserved, which is why it's great that AGFA, you know, is out there now saying, hey, you know, we want to archive these prints, you know, we want to start scanning and, and restoring them and making them available, but also preserving them um for the future um because you know film is a very impermanent you know medium you know yeah. um even you know i think the even prints that are made today under the very best of conditions have a maximum life of maybe 100 to 150 years now that sounds like a long time but compare that to renaissance paintings or, or the Sistine Chapel or, you know, pottery or bronzes or whatever. And 100 to 150 years is not actually that long. I mean, there, there are many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of books that are much, much older than that. Like, it's not a big surprise if you find a, a book in a library used bookstore that's 100 years old. But if well, you find a film print that's 100 years old, you're like, oh my God, you know, this still survives you know the I mean Craig just really briefly you you handled the original 35 millimeter nitrate negative of a 1909 DW Griffiths short called The Sun's Return which I think is the earliest surviving film that Mary Pickford appears in. Yeah that was an amazing project. <laughs> that we worked at the, it there or I should say Craig worked mm -hmm. at um at Sinalicious uh, Restoration for the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Mary Pickford Foundation. And the original 35 millimeter nitrate negative wow. that film exists. Now that seems yeah, incredibly that precious to us. But if you held a book from 1909, you go, oh, it's an old book, but there's tons of books from 1909. So film is a very, very fragile and impermanent medium. Wow. Which is why it's good that there's so many collectors out there that have Blu-rays and, you know, the, the more copies of something that are out there, the, the more chances that it will actually survive for another 50, 100, 200 years. Well, it's, it's, that's, that's exactly the argument I make to my wife when my collection creeps up. It's just over 3,700 <laughs> now. And uh, I, if wow. I had more money, it would be 10,000. I mean, there's, you know, this limitless, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, it's, a, that's all about preservation, which is actually one of the reasons I fell in love with Agfa and, and, and y'all. 
Um, honestly, is that kind of the attitude I got. So anyways, um, unbelievable time chatting with y'all. I will, we will definitely be reaching out in the future. Um, Fantastic. Have you yeah. seen the, uh, the Kino Blu-ray of the Golem that came out? Yes. Oh my God. Unbelievable. From the camera negative 4K restoration. I watched it like a week ago and I was like, my jaw was on the floor. Yeah. I was like, that looks so beautiful. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah, I like I like the work that Kino's doing. I, it's 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 amazing to think about the the volume that they've been able to push out as well. The other one that uh, that uh, I thought was remarkable, I got it as a gift for uh, the holiday season, was their um, ten classics of Yiddish cinema with the Dibuk. And I know Serge Bromberg of Lobster Films, who's an amazing uh, film historian and preservationist, who's who helped rescue dozens of lost. Melier's films and, and many others and he's, he's profiled in my book and he was uh he was involved he was re responsible for the restoration of the Dibbuk and a number of other films on that set and I watched it and I literally shot him an email and I said oh geez you know you know really thank you you know all praise to Serge for for rescuing and restoring this film it was really remarkable I love it I love it. Uh, Craig, if, uh, on Reddit, there's a user named Captain Gibb. He's one of the mods for the Criterion sub. If you ever see him, he's gone deep down that hole. His, his knowledge of um, female filmmakers in the Soviet Union in the 20s is unparalleled. And he, like, so anyways, you ever- <laughs> That's he, pretty he, specific. <laughs> yeah, he, he actually wants to teach a course on that topic. I mean, he's pretty good on silent films in general, but um, we, we've connected a little bit just over preservation. You wanna, if you wanna see a brilliant, brilliant movie, uh, watch The Last Bolshevik by my late friend Chris Marker. Okay. Absolute masterpiece. It's one of his, his, his brilliant sort of cine essays, but it's about his friendship with a Soviet filmmaker from the 1930s that he met and befriended much later in life. And it's about Soviet cinema and about the history of the Soviet Union and about the history of this man's life in the 20th century. Wow. absolute masterpiece okay thank the you the last yeah. bolshevik brilliant film i'll watch it um well great talking to you chris thank you for letting us